Welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Join us. I'm Wes Avram, the director of the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life uh, in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is our Out of the Park podcast series. I enjoy hosting this series and, uh, and, and I'm glad to have conversations with interesting guests, one of whom we have today in Alan Hilton. Alan is the director of House United, an organization working in the church and outside the churches on uh, questions and challenges of ideological, political, racial, uh, cultural, theological reconciliation and conversation so we can be stronger together than we are separate. Uh, Alan is uh, a long uh, friend of the Park Center. In fact, was part of, was a kind of theologian in residence for a time. Alan, I'm thrilled to have you on the other side of the microphone today. Thanks, Wes. It's great to be here. Alan is a uh, minister in the United Church of Christ, is an academic, having uh, served on the faculty of Yale Divinity School and other schools, has served congregations, and is now doing this work nationally. Alan, you've been doing House United and related work for how long? So as my day job for seven years, and prior to that, probably for four or five, just within a community in Minnesota, Wyzetta Community Church. Well, tell me a little bit about House United and uh, the inspiration behind that and uh, the kind of how that work has unfolded over those years. So in the early 2000s, in 2000s and the early 2010s, uh, I began to sense that there was more animus across party lines, that that people were talking about one another instead of to one another, that they, they were avoiding one another. And as I saw that, I saw it in sociological writings, but the general culture and ministers didn't seem to be appreciating it yet. And And so I started having conversations in 2012 between mm-hmm. unlike parties on issues that they disagreed on. And it started with the marriage amendment in in the state of Minnesota, one one man, one woman for life. And um, you were on the staff of a congregation. I was. Well, I was at a community church. And and as that happened, it's a big church, thousand on a Sunday uh, at the time. And, and we knew that our people were talking about it, but they were talking about it in echo chambers. They were talking about it with people who agreed with them on the issue. And the whole city was doing the same thing. And we decided, let's roll out. Uh, a courageous conversation and see what happens. So we said we only invited our congregation uh, come talk openly and from different perspectives about this issue. And we didn't do everything right, but 425 people showed up hmm. just from our congregation because they wanted to they wanted to try to figure it out. And and that was the beginning of this work. I had suggested that thing, and it actually happened, and and it went relatively well. So we started having conversations like that on controversial issues like immigration or gun control or, you know, things that people are on the sort of top ten list of things mm-hmm. people disagree strongly on politically. And um, And the choice to make this a full-time effort. To leave the kind of security of a congregational post and a salary, and well, that too, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and to and to go off in, into the night yeah. uh, to try to make the case that this is important. Uh, that's a decision. It's a family decision. It's yeah. a personal decision. Um, was it a, a decision 
from a sense that there is a solution that people aren't paying attention to, that there's a problem that must be raised up, there's a passion that needs to be tended to? What was the turning point that that kind of compelled you to make that kind of decision? That's a that's a great question. During those four years between when we had our first conversation and when I went out on my own, I noticed that the conversations we had in that congregation were working. People Mm -hmm. were trusting one another more as they talked. They were able to share more of their differences and stay in the room together. Uh, They kept asking for new topics to be addressed. And, And that hunger, along with that formational development, uh, sort of started to indicate to me there's going to come a time when I have the decision, do I help this group get really, really good at this, these thousand people on a Sunday, or you know, whoever is a part of this congregation, get really, really good at this, or would it be good for me to become a Pauline missionary <laughs> who, who goes and cold calls cities about this? And And so I started through connections to do this elsewhere while I was still at it was mm-hmm. at a church and it became enough of a sort of I saw the same things happening enough to think you know what I'm going to I'm going to just jump out and and trust God and trust that what I see so far will continue so and we, it was scary well we it was scary yeah is it still it, the the work wasn't scary the finances were scary <laughs> <laughs> um and so one of the great uh, gifts of God was you, Wes, called me and said, Alan, uh, you're done it. You're done it. Why is that a church? And at the time I had recognized I couldn't really start with another church somewhere near because that's mm-hmm. ethically dicey for pastors. Um, so why don't you come work with us at Pinnacle? And that was an absolute godsend mm-hmm. uh, because it gave me gainful employ, but not all encompassing gainful employ. So I got to start to build this uh, barnstorming tour. Well, as you helped us shape the Park Center for Faith and Life and the kind of direction it took, you also called the question on this question of dialogue and how, and you know, one of the pillars we base our programming around is called Project Dialogue, mm-hmm. which includes some of the work and very work you do and was inspired mm-hmm. by it and continues to be resourced by it. Um, and in part of our Project Dialogue, I'm going to jump ahead to a question from this, is a series of conversations, um, many of which are part of this podcast series, around questions of the common life or the common good. Mm-hmm. What is a common good, which I believe is a is an idea born of the Reformed tr- tradition of Christian theology that we embrace, that this idea that there should be a space in which uh, dialogue, conversation, argument across difference um, creates a context in which the best argument wins, mm-hmm. right? And not one group dominates, but there is a a space in which we are each committed to the best in each other mm-hmm. and taking care of the most vulnerable among us so that we share a common good that allows us then to make good arguments with each other, right? Um, and there's more to be said about that, but you know, in, in some rough form, I think that's the notion of the common good coming out of kind of Reformed theology, right? And so in the midst of your work, we've experienced a social and cultural trauma uh, in the pandemic. You were doing this work a few years before the pandemic and now doing this a couple years past. Have you seen in your work the idea 
of what we share together and can do for each other in a common space, the common good. Has that changed? Was that impacted? What's your gut? What have you seen about this idea of the common good pre-pandemic, post-pandemic? Yeah, yeah. So backing up to the your starting point, which I, I love, the com- ongoing conversation about the common good that you all are having. Um, so two things that, that have impacted me and that impact the way I answer this question. Uh, one is Oliver Wendell Holmes, 1919. uh gave the first free speech opinion that the Supreme Court had really ever uh, brought to its fullness. And he was a dissent, but there were a series of wartime uh, issues about how people had used pamphlets and, and speech to protest the war, and they were prosecuted for getting in the way. They were prosecuted for hurting the war effort. And one by one, the court kept saying, uh, kept deciding for the prosecution, basically. In 2019, U.S. v. Abrams, another case like the rest, but somebody had been working on Holmes mm-hmm. and talking to him in the background and uh, sort of influencing him on this. And he wrote a famous opinion in which he said that the free trade in ideas mm-hmm. is our, our safest path to truth. That that letting all of the opinions have to have to try to win uh, instead of squelching some in favor of others that seem to those in power to be better uh, would be a better way forward. And it ended up a dissenting view, but Mm -hmm. it started a larger sense of what we could do with free speech and common good had a lot to do with it. Let me. Uh, I think you meant tw- uh, 1919, not 2019. Oh, I, right? yeah, 1919 is what <laughs> I, I is what I said the, the, once, and then I think I I lapsed back to finding. I think we need a little yeah. more of it. In, in yeah, 2019 we We didn't have well, a war right? in 2015 <laughs> through 18, um, but we did in 1914 through. We had a little bit of a cultural war. Yeah, that's right. That time, but, that's um, right. You know, I think you know one of my favorite authors is James Boyd White, mm-hmm. um, English professor, but teaches in a law school, and so writes about law. Mm as a rhetorical art form. Right? Mm. And he has, I think it's in his book, Living Speech. I'm not sure. It might be in When Words Lose Their Meaning. He talks about that opinion by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Mm. And and the idea, and his idea, is that often dissenting opinions are the most articulate opinions. Mm-hmm. And then in the history of jurisprudence, dissent is an art form. Yeah. And the art form that often becomes common opinion. It becomes the seed, right? It becomes the, it gives a chance to something that we embrace later. Yeah, I love that. So to always read the dissents. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. Some of the best and most articulate work is often done there. Not always, but often. Yeah. But he talks about that idea of a free market in ideas. Yeah. Somewhat critically uh, with the idea that the problem is market forces, uh, like any forces, need to be regulated to protect the weak. And that even this question of a free market and ideas uh, must also recognize that there are some forms of dominance in speech that must be chastened in order to allow a free market of ideas actually to function well. Yeah, and so one of those cases that I mentioned earlier in 1919 was Schenck, U.S. v. Schenck, in which the opinion included the... uh, the majority opinion, included a line that became important, the clear and present danger line, Mm -hmm. 
which was if I speak something around my dinner table and it defames Polish workers, say, it's protected speech because there's no clear and present danger that some kind of prosecutable thing is going to arise from that speech. And so if I say it outside a Polish worker's house with a mob of people with staves in their hands, Mm -hmm. it becomes... Uh, a part of a clear and present danger. It foments a clear and present danger that another thing is going to happen. And what what I've been thinking about this, what you know, the the aspect of this question you present is everything is a clear and present danger now because if if I'm a candidate for office and somebody says something against me and I put the people who support mm-hmm. me in a violent mode about that person and give the address. I don't have to be outside their house. Right. Everybody's got a device. They may right. be outside the house, mm-hmm. right? So so it's a very complicated thing and it matters what the systems of dominance are, what domination are, what who has the power uh to do harm in what ways. But the hope for free trade in ideas is a good enough one that we ought to do that nuanced work. Yeah. Well, how do we, when we're doing that, and this is a political question, but I think it's also a theological one and how we think about community in general. How do we protect a space for dissent even mm-hmm. when it's uncomfortable? Right. I think particularly in times of war, you know, we tend to, under the cloak of patriotism, uh, remove dissent. Yep. You can do anything but dissent from the actions of the country when the country, when the nation has a monopoly on violence. Uh, and yet, those are the moments in which we need Descent, perhaps the most. Yep, um, and and we are. Let's remind ourselves in a constant culture war, mm-hmm. and so the string of schools at which, at the time, progressive students shouted down conservative speakers who had been invited to campus. Mm-hmm. That was a, a time, and and continues to be a time when we're sorting through this question: What does honest dissent? Ha- what function does it have among us? And how do we tell the honest dissent from opportunistic dissent? Right. And how do we weigh whether a speaker who is against the majority in the place is trying to contribute or trying to undermine? You know, they, they, there are a lot of factors involved. But I again, I am generally hopeful that if we mind those nuances, a free trade in ideas is a better way forward than squelching ideas for the sake of safety. Well, there's uh, there's no political measure for what I'm about to describe, but it's but I've I've been moved for many years by um, a description of nonviolence, and I think it was in a book by Robert Inkowski called "The Ignorant Perfection of Ordinary People." He's trying to unpack the power of King's commitment to nonviolence and a few other um, yeah. writers he's writing about. And he comes up, he, and he develops this notion of self-application as the first discipline of nonviolence is the willingness to apply to yourself the same standards you apply to others, mm-hmm. and that's the first work of nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Right? And there is a sense in which I think you, that's rigor, right? That a sense in which dissent can be strong and loud and passionate, uh, and it it skirts. The, it, it remains nonviolent to the extent that it's self-reflective, that we're willing to apply to ourselves the same standards we're applying to others. Mm-hmm. Right? That's self-discipline. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. But, you, but it's a sense, you know, you know it when you see it. You know when someone 
is putting themselves at the service of their own words and letting their own words judge themselves as well as others. And then there's a credibility to that, mm-hmm. to that voice, right? Yeah. As, as passionate and dissenting as it may be. Yeah. Yeah, and then, then the problem or the question becomes how do we form people who, who exert that kind of self-assessment or self, self-application? And how do we? Yeah. Um, it has to be a value. Mm. And uh, you and I t- used to talk quite a bit about values as a, as a backdrop for all kinds of other parts of how we do ministry and how we, how we build community. The cultural value on any sort of, any sort of self assessment and any virtue that is defined around applying things to ourselves has kind of eroded mm. and how to build that back up i mean it it's like any other form of formation i imagine but but it's hard when you lose it <laughs> you know so particularly so do you think in a culture where self expression becomes the key to identity formation yeah and rather than self respect self restraint yeah self expression and brand self branding it yeah. we're, we're projecting people instead of being people in a way and and that's an overstatement but but i think it keeps us from from self criticism or self uh, assessment because we're all about what other people think of us <laughs> in a way what i'm i'm branding myself so that i have to fit that brand and it doesn't very often put a mirror back to me on what i actually am and who i want to become mm. um, so you work with churches uh quite a bit as well as corporate or um other forms of organizations institutional life uh in the context of Let's go to church. Church as community shaping, morally forming people through speaking and mm-hmm. listening and ritual and life together. Mm-hmm. Where in this have you seen this beginning to work well? What kind of community, church communities, have you seen that you thought, ah, there's something happening here? So when things work in the kind of formation I'm trying to be a part of, it's it never happens if the pastor alone is a champion and it never happens if a layperson alone mm-hmm. is the champion it's always worked best where the pastor doesn't have to lead it and be the only voice and yet the pastor is for it and open to leadership from people who are lay folks and I, that may be just a small sample, but my sample's gotten bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so that's one dynamic in, in place. A readiness. I, I think, I mean, one of the things I was asked in an interview a couple weeks ago, uh, the, the premise of the question that I was asked was, this must be getting harder. Your work must be getting harder because stats show that we're dividing more and more. And, and, and yet one of the, I, I didn't answer by just saying, yeah, it's harder. Because there is, there is a point at which people recognize the problem and its urgency enough to be formable. Hmm. And so it's gotten they, the sense of division and the sense of rupture of community or fracture of community has gotten higher, which includes what are we going to do about it. And in, in the places where they've gotten to the point where they say we need to do something about mm-hmm. this. It's more effective. Sales or any way to enter a community uh, relies partly on the level of sense need or desire for what's being offered. 
I sometimes implant that sense, but most of the mm-hmm. time I build on it. So it already exists in the people. That's why they reached out to me in the first place. Is there more work than you can do? Not that you see that, but are, is there more awareness of the need than you can catch up to? One of the things that happened, I mentioned earlier why I left uh, salaried place ministry and, and started to widen the number of groups and kinds of groups I was reaching to was that nobody was doing this. Mm-hmm. I looked around, there were people doing uh, racial reconciliation, there were people doing all kinds of other things, but as I said, the people weren't recognizing this. So in 2012, we're doing it, 13, 14, 15, and I start the, the nonprofit we registered in February of 2016. Well, of course, the Donald Hillary campaign, and even the primaries, made everybody suddenly aware that there was something there mm-hmm. that they didn't know before. And and that awareness produced a demand for for what I do uh, that I didn't need to plant. Mm-hmm. Then I would come in and say, you really want a different way than this, mm-hmm. don't you? And they would say yes. And that's the starting point for, well, let's try to take this out for a spin. What would it be to be a wildly diverse community, recognizing the assets of that? Uh, the two passages, House United, uh, were born to serve mm-hmm. uh, the God of the two passages. <laughs> uh, were John 17, where Jesus prays that they all may be one for his disciples and all who will believe through their words that they all may be one. Uh, and he ties it to uh, connection to God as a way of connecting to divine unity. So there's a spiritual connectedness about that. Mm-hmm. It's not just social engineering. So that's a one one foundational passage. The other one comes in this common good language. Mm-hmm. The other one is from 1 Corinthians 12, where first Paul says, there are a variety of gifts, but the same giver, and all for the common good. That's, mm-hmm. that's I think, the only place in the Bible where the words common good come as a phrase. And uh, and that, that was very important for starting this yeah. work, because it's it's a way of saying we're different for a reason. Mm-hmm. And everybody goes to what I'm good at is different than what you're good at for a reason. But we t- we've taken out for a spin for now seven years. Mm-hmm. Maybe the fact that you're conservative and I'm progressive or that you're um, that we are oriented politically differently is actually a gift of God for the common good. Mm hmm. And people chafe at that. When I first say it, they all kind of choke and spit. And but but when they think about it long enough, they realize, well, yeah, p- there are plenty of studies that show that identical twins separated at birth uh, end up kind of politically oriented in similar ways, and the sample is big enough to. So maybe God is making us this this way. Maybe God is trending us to be both. You know, some of us to be progressive, some of us to be conservative, because things get better made and better done with those uh, with those combinations and chemistries. To receive that and think on that, one needs to acknowledge that two things could possibly be true at the same time. Yes, or at least that we're we're right in different things coming from different ways of doing okay. the world. It can either be alternating or it can be two things being true at the same time. Mm-hmm. In the midst of this work, you wrote a book. I did. The House United. Publisher? Uh, it's Fortress Press. Fortress Press. Fortress Press. Still available? It is still available. Amen to that. <laughs> That's a little plug for the audience yeah. here. But in House United, you were hopeful about this work. 
Are you still hopeful? Yes, uh, because Jesus came out of the grave. (laughs) It sounds facetious, but God delivered Israel from Pharaoh after 400 years of slavery. Mm -hmm. Pharaoh was probably the most powerful person in the world at the time. And this upstart group of Hebrews end up away. And the story is what the story is. And it's not very detailed historically about how all that happened. Mm -hmm. But there are things God's done that are much bigger than American polarization. Mm -hmm. And there's hope in that. But there's also a necessity of reliance on God. John 17 has it that if we are in Jesus, who is in God, and we partake in the divine unity, we will be unified, Mm -hmm. which is a bad commentary on us relative to litmus test, right? Mm -hmm. We aren't unified. Therefore, does that mean we aren't in God? We aren't. I mean, is it is it a uh, a sort of natural flow from being in God to being unified? Uh, But also it gives me hope that it's not all about us. It's not that we have to come up with exactly the right formula. God wants this. And Jesus prayed for this. And in many places, it's happened. And we will be reconciled. I wrote a piece once, and I may have even put it in the book. I kind of forget. (laughs) Where Revelation 7, every tribe and every nation singing before the throne of God. So we're in rehearsal now, (laughs) in a way. And we aren't doing well at it. Because we, we aren't putting the altos with the basses and the sopranos and the tenors. We're keeping them separate. But... It would be a better song <laughs> and and performable now if we did better rehearsing. And that's that's sort of a driver for my hope and also for process. Let's take one another out for a spin and see if we go in a room and get things better mm-hmm. than we would have had if we'd stayed separate. And time and again, it seems to happen. Pretty good vision of the common good. Yeah. Yeah. I love to talk about the common good. Let's keep talking about it and maybe yeah. even another time. But yeah. this we're kind of at the conclusion of our time here. So this has been uh, the Out of the Park podcast series with the Reverend Dr. Alan Hilton from House United Ministries and many other uh, meaningful um, expressions of his work toward ideological, theological, cultural reconciliation and unification uh, in the church and beyond. So thank you, Alan, for being with us. Thanks, Wes. It was great to talk with you. Join us next time on Out of the Park from the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life. Out of the Park podcast series. If you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.framparkcenter.org.